Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is political, uh, politically possible. If popularity matters to policy, why is it that so few people seem interested in persuasion? Listen to cable, TV news, and commentary, and you won't find much except preaching to the choir. People on social media seem to be more interested in yelling at each other than convincing each other. Even the people paying to get your attention want to animate you more than enlighten you. So if your opinion matters, why is it that so few people even try to change your mind? I'm going to talk this through with my colleague, Jared Skorup, the Vice President, uh, Vice President for Marketing and Communications here at the Mackinac Center. Jared, why is there, or where is there persuasion in politics? Uh, it's constant. It's happening all the time. But to your point, it's less about, um, I want to give people this political view that I have and bring them over to my side. And it's a lot more about animating people on the issues that you care about so that they're going to be willing to do things like vote for you or uh, convince others of a position or just get more excited about it or about downplaying how uh, the negative parts of what politicians are putting for. So it's, it's less about bringing them totally over to your side and more about the intensity on both sides. Why is that? I mean, shouldn't we want to be changing each other's minds? I think it's just a reality, you know, for, for politicians, um, yeah, for groups like ours, we care about changing people's minds. I think for regular people, they care about changing people's minds. I think for politicians, I mean, the number one goal is election. I think the economist Thomas Sowell said the number one goal of politicians is election and the number two goal is re-election and everything else after that is pretty far down the list. Um, and so to do that, you have such a small percentage of people that vote in elections, uh, especially down at the local level. And so the audience is just, it's just not this broad base, everyone in the universe. It's a select group of people. Yeah, I think Adrian Heeman had mentioned something that he was a political consultant and uh, uh, he was trying to clear up this misconception, or he said that people have this misconception and that is that uh, polit or elections is how we try to uh, determine policy, or sorry, what, what is it? Uh, that we're trying to convince people in elections. We're not. We're trying to get people to vote for each other. Elections wind up being how we keep score on issues rather than how to advance them. Yeah. And I mean, the the other uh, side point is there's all these trade-offs going on. So for example, you know, if you're a politician uh, on the Democratic side or Republican side, uh, if you're really out there on TV or in the media, especially at the congressional level, as kind of a firebrand, um, on the one hand, that can kind of turn off more moderate people in your district. On the other hand, it can raise you a lot of money nationally. So there's these constant trade-offs going on, I think, in a lot of people's minds over is the amount of money I'm going to raise and animating my base worth it for what's happening to people on the other side or, or in the middle. And so all these things that normal people I don't think think about, but politicians do. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, uh, I think, something that we've kind of talked about on the show a lot, which is um, 
politicians are doing a lot of things other than what it sounds like they're doing. As in, like, uh, oftentimes it sounds like they're trying to advocate for, for something. They're trying to get in, into the public fray. And there's something else that they're doing, or at least they're uh, um, entirely. And part of that is, like, following through on their strategy to, uh, to be a firebrand sometimes, or trying to cater to their base, uh, trying to tell people what they want to hear. Um, what else do politicians try to do with it? Or at least how do you interpret uh, 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 how do you interpret it when lawmakers are trying to tell you something? I think they're doing what um, lots of groups and lots of people do, which is, you know, not always strategically, maybe by accident, but they're emphasizing or promoting the things that they believe are more popular to whatever audience they're reaching, and they're downplaying the things that they're doing or believing. Um, that are more negative. And I mean, we, uh, you know, you wrote on this recently in, in Michigan, where the Michigan legislature has passed $3 billion in select incentives this year. Um, you know, they, we argue about that issue. The governor promotes that as this is job growth. Um, other opponents are promoting it as corporate welfare, or it's giving money to Chinese connected companies or, or whatever they feel is more unpopular. But broadly speaking, the Michigan legislature has not been promoting that issue. They're talking about issues um, related to um, social issues or abortion or or even just, you know, changes to the Michigan flag or all these other things that they think are more popular, certainly, than talking about that issue. So they made a major policy change, but it's not nearly being as talked about as other issues that are far more minor to people's lives. Yeah, and I think they made that policy change not because they were convinced of the economics that this would improve the state, but weighing the political concerns that they had, which was that, is this going to get me good headlines? If I vote against this, is someone going to attack me uh, or criticize me for it? Um, it's rarely about um, a good judgment about what is the best way to uh, increase uh, or to serve the public's interest. But let's get out of politics for just a little bit, because there's a lot of other people making political claims who aren't politicians. And one of the key ways that, that, that we do this is to argue in newspapers, to write op-eds and to make arguments or to get arguments out as best you can. Um, and I am constantly disappointed at how few op-eds are even, uh, even or, or uh, how few op-eds where the author even tries to persuade. So I read a recent op-ed um, about having taxpayers cover the cost of school lunches for kids from wealthy families and that this was going to reduce child hunger. The author never got around to explaining how paying for school lunches for families who can afford school lunches is going to do anything about child hunger. And it's not an atypical case to see, um, to see an argument where the author just leaves out any attempt to persuade me or, an, and I hope, any other modestly skeptical reader. So what's going on there? Why, why do people make arguments that don't seem like they're even intending to persuade people? I think that op-ed writing has just gotten so much worse than it used to. Frankly, I'm not a big, like, nostalgia, everything was greater back in the day type person, but man, um, I was one of those people that got interested in policy because my family got the Chicago Tribune every day, and I really enjoyed reading op-eds, and, and they would have people like Thomas Sowell and George Will, but even people more on the left um, who were writing pieces that did seem to want to persuade you. And I think that that doesn't happen too often any uh, 
anymore. When we're thinking about writing op-eds um, internally here at the Mackinac Center, you know, we I talk about it as you know, there's there's kind of these three audiences out there. There's there's those who agree with you, there's those who disagree, and then you know this combination category of people who don't care or are ignorant. And if you're trying to persuade somebody who disagrees with you, that's a lot harder work uh, to do. And I think a lot of people out there just aren't willing to. Uh, or are incapable of even thinking about what are the arguments that might persuade someone on the other side. I mean, yes, that is really hard uh, to to, conv- to to say that uh, to take someone. Well, let's pick let's pick an issue of occupational licensing. It's one of your your things where you say, look, this is a, more of a barrier uh, to entry in most cases than it is something that protects public health. And you've got someone who's more inclined to think no. These things are important to be to be licensed. To change their mind requires a lot of work, and frankly, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why you don't see much persuasion. Uh, is that it's hard. Um, yeah, yeah, and and I actually did a speech yesterday on occupational on occupational licensing, and it was a it was to a Kiwanis group. Um, it was a lot of um, people that are more on the left side of the spectrum. I was told that by the organizer. Um, And I was very excited to give that talk because I've given it to talks of people on all sides of the political spectrum. And one thing that, you know, on that issue, everyone kind of comes together on is they might have different opinions about how much regulation we need, but but everyone pretty much agrees that regulation should at least make sense. And so I have a big presentation about how arbitrary this is and things like how you need more hours of training to be a cosmetologist and to be a lawyer in Michigan. And that's really hard to defend. Um, now, a lot of times people are, they really want to get down in the specifics on their actual um, occupation. So I was having a discussion afterwards with a guy that was an airline pilot, and I was talking to somebody that worked in finance, and, and they care a lot about the specifics, but I'm trying to sell them on, you know, we just need to actually just spend time thinking about this, and how do we actually measure whether something makes sense. But I do spend a lot of time on when I'm doing speeches on trying to, what are the arguments that are going to persuade this group, especially somebody that has a different political philosophy than me? That's an interesting situation that you that you found yourself in, which is, I don't think is, a lot of people do, which is uh, you're presenting in person to a big group of people who are not inclined to agree with you. How did it go? Like, how, how did you feel like you got received? I think it went well. Um, but I mean, I think some of that was the audience is they have these preconceptions about who the Mackinac Center is, not really on this issue, but on other issues. And so sometimes if you're thinking, all right, I'm a conservative and the ACLU is going to speak to me about this, or I'm more liberal and uh, this is a Democratic politician, you kind of have this built up, like, I'm already not going to agree with them. I like that because it means if I give them anything that they're going to, that they are like, yeah, that kind of made sense to me, then, uh, you know, I've come out ahead. And I've done this with League of Women Voters, speaking about higher education. Um, I've spoken to a lot, variety of groups on things like minimum wage. But I think about this too, like, even like fam- my family is one of those big, loud, argues at, get togethers type family all, all over the map. A lot of, you, my uncles are in unions, and then I've got some that are much more conservative or Republican. And so I think I just grew up around a lot of, like, disagreement is okay. And uh, even when I was pretty young, I realized, man, people are not always putting forth their best argument to persuade people. Um, and I was interested in actually persuading people, so I spent more time thinking about that. 
I think presenting in person really improves your chances. So if you're reading something that's challenging you, you've got all sorts of reasons to just neglect it. I mean, it's uh, this is kind of a basic psychological phenomenon. I think I read about this in Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind, where he's like, look, if something challenged you, you ask yourself, must I believe this? And no, you never have to believe anything. Uh, no one's forcing you, we're all adults here. Uh, uh, we can make up our own minds. And then if something, uh, if you're presented with something um, and it uh, confirms your belief, you ask, can I believe this? And the answer is always yes. You you can basically believe anything. It already conforms with your worldview. It's something that you can, um, you can adopt. And so like when you're just reading something from someone, you can always kind of push them aside. Um, and that's a kind of the case on social media too, where like there's just so much distance between you and the person who's 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 presenting yeah. their case to you. But when you're in person, that kind of goes away. You, the, the the person who you're challenging has to see you as a person, um, and uh, hopefully, I guess your tone that you're going to give to them is telling you, "I think this is a really interesting thing. I think you're you should be on my side on this. I'm a nice guy. You should listen to what I say. And if you've got a problem uh, with this or if you've got concerns, let let's let's hash it out." And so, like, that kind of environment itself matters a lot to persuasion. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I'm a big believer in that you really only change people's minds if they trust you. And so if you're in a family, if, if you've got family or if you've got friends, um, you know, you that's usually when people will change their mind because they're like, well, I trust this person on other things, so I'm willing to hear them out. Now, when you're doing a speech like that, I th- yes. So I will do things to try to build the trust of the audience, um, you know, just by talking about, hey, you know, my my sister and brothers are teachers. And so here's how they go through the teacher licensing. My dad works in construction. Here's how we've navigated that. Here's how I've worked in that area. And then people are starting to say, oh, okay, he he's somebody who has some experience in this just like I do. And, and they're making that connection. Now, when you're reading something that's written where you almost never know the the author, many times you have no experience with who they are at all. Um, if if you're trying to convince someone, the I mean, you really have to make arguments that try to fit where you think that audience is. So so is it a more emotional? Is it a strictly fact-based audience? I mean, I don't think there's a total right answer, um, but people are convinced by arguments that fit their worldview. They're not convinced by arguments that fit someone else's worldview. And so you actually have to consider that when you are trying to convince them, especially through something like the written word. Let's talk a little bit more about trust, because when I hear the political debate, one of the most frequent arguments, I think, is is not that you should trust me, but you shouldn't trust all of these other people. Um, why, is it, why is it so focused on destroying credibility instead of dealing with arguments, evidence, facts? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting political time, because on the one hand, both parties are seen really negatively, especially at the national level. And so if you can tie your opponent to that negative thing, then that will that could buy you something as a political opponent who again, it's just about the election time. It's not it's not about uh, you know, all these things on the way there or trying to convince them. On the other hand, like if you look at the last election cycle, um, at least in like the Senate and gubernatorial elections, you had a very high rate of incumbents getting reelected. 
And I don't know if it if that is that that they're able to raise more money or if coming out of COVID, people were just willing to give the benefit of the doubt to whoever the head of their state was or what it was. But what we know is the political parties are are looked on very negatively and yet individual politicians are still winning rates uh, races at very high rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about, uh, you mentioned that there's uh, some other ways that you can, pers- or sorry, some approaches to persuasion. Some of it's facts, some of it's arguments, some of it's pulling on emotional strings. Like, um, I, I guess, uh, what... Um, what are some of your tactics that you use to try to uh, persuade people? Yeah, so, so at the Mackinac Center, um, where we're we have a little bit of you know we have these issues that are very issues that are being worked on right now in the legislature that we're trying to convince people on, but we also have kind of longer term, broader uh, policies that we're working on, and so we have that balance. Um, and so, you know, there's no bill up right now to deal with pension reform in the state of Michigan. But we're still going to write on that issue because our, part of our uh, purpose is to kind of keep ideas alive, kind of do the hard work of maybe planting seeds into people, trying to do that smaller, uh, lower level convincing them for when this issue might come up. Um, but just on the more practical level, we do spend time trying to reach people where they are. We are often trying to animate our own audiences or get them to uh, change their intensity. So sometimes uh, the intensity of how people feel about an issue might be off from the real reason about why they should uh, feel the intensity about that issue. But we have our core group of supporters, and we might be trying to say, hey, they're trying to repeal right to work right now. Here's why it's a big deal. You should really care about it. We might be putting uh, the issue on their radar. And then, of course, we are trying to uh, convince people um, across the political spectrum, um, testing different messages, um, trying to figure out how to measure success. Um, but it's a combination of convincing people in the short and long term, as well as getting the intensity level up for our own audiences to try to, or people that are generally, I think, on the more right side, libertarian conservative spectrum, and getting them to really care about the issue that we think is really important right now. Yeah, I uh, I think this is the Overton Window podcast, and where an issue is in relation to the Overton Window tells you the strategy that you need to do to get this enacted. So, for instance, if if there's good policy that's already within the Overton Window, you just need to hold people's hands. It's already popular. You you, you got to get it. Uh, you, you just got to work through the objections that are that are being made in the political process. That's a very insider-heavy kind of process. If something's kind of on the fringes. Intensity really matters, as in, like, it, uh, it's not just that it's popular. you got to show that people really want this thing. Um, and so, like, that's a different type of persuasion that you have to do. If something is out of the uh, Overton window entirely, the only way that you're ever going get to uh, get it closer is not through animating people, but it's actually persuading them that's a good idea. Yes. Well, um, so Milton Friedman said... Uh, only a crisis, real or perceived, produces real change. And I think we relate that to that Overton window concept. So there, you might have people that are 
very animated on one side and the other fighting. And then you have lots of people, very high percentage usually, that are not aware of that issue or they really don't care about it. But if you have a crisis, that can move the Overton window. And this will happen with things like 9-11, where you know there was some small percentage of people that here's what we need to do to prevent terrorism – and people on the other side disagreeing, saying, no, here's what we need to do to prevent terrorism. And But for most people, they're not really – I don't think they really thought about that issue. It wasn't high on their list. And then something like 9-11, which is this huge crisis, and then everyone's animated, but it very rapidly shifted the overtime window. Whether you agree or disagree, it shifted it based on uh, – us going to war in other countries it shifted it on the tsa which essentially didn't exist prior to 9-11 and airport security and these things that have lasted for a long time and you know you can agree or disagree but that shifted the overton window very massively not by i don't think convincing people who disagreed but more by animating all these people who didn't think about the issue i'm gonna push back Alrighty. on you so uh I think, yes, cri- uh, crisis can change a lot of political margins as things that were underappreciated some, uh, sometimes can take, you know, um, uh, can take center stage. But on what is political, like, bad or unpopular policy doesn't immediately become popular because, uh, because of a crisis. And there's so many issues where things do, in fact, evolve. Yeah. And I, I'm going to use a negative example on this, which is, Business subsidies, it's one of my issues I care about. Uh, selective business subsidies are uh, don't, uh, don't create jobs. They're, they're ineffective at creating jobs. They're unfair to the businesses who don't get them, and they're expensive to the state budget. And it used to be that states didn't offer anything. As in, if you wanted to come here, great, we'll help you uh, get situated. And now we offer hundreds of millions of dollars to, to, any, uh, to these big companies who are politically powerful who ask for it. And that was a gradual change over time. I mean, there's a lot of policy that is just what was, uh, it was unthinkable 50 years ago, and now it's common practice today. How? Because things change slowly over time. So again, I do think you're right that crises are, are, do change a lot of political margins, but the slow march of, of persuasion, I think, is an underappreciated phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're disagreeing with Milton Friedman, not me, but that's okay. Um, yeah, well, I think about, like... I mean, I think, come on, it... He is clearly being superlative when he said it's only crises. Yes. There are things. That, and in fact, let me tell, give you another example on this, on an issue that Milton Friedman cared a lot about, school choice. There wasn't a huge crisis that changed everything. It's been a slow, steady march to the point, uh, now, COVID was a crisis. It, uh, I think it did help a lot of states go to these universal scholarship programs that didn't exist before. But school choice has been a, a slow march of, of persuasion, and I think it's been important and impressive because now even school choice opponents adopt school choice rhetoric. Yeah, I was actually going to go right to that school choice issue, which is something that's uh, gradually been moving towards the direction of school choice to where um, getting rid of that even in um, some deep blue states has not really come up. I mean, so my home state of Illinois, um, I grew up in rural area and i remember i literally had never heard of homeschooling and it was like i went all of a sudden in like eighth or ninth grade um i was at our church youth group and i remember seeing kids that i'd never seen which does not happen in a town of five thousand um 
and I found out that they were homeschooled. And I was like, there's kids that are homeschooled here. And now um, it's a huge community. Um, me and, uh, you know, one, one of our kids is homeschooled and there's a big co-op here in Midland. And it's the, everybody knows somebody who's who's homeschooled and that you kind of work around it. But yeah, the, the COVID was, it was a crisis um, that I think made uh, kind of a, ignited uh what was having gradual change where you did spike you went from zero to six states that have universal uh private school choice options and so you know that that's probably as much progress as you made on school choice in just a two-year period as you'd had in probably 30 years so a crisis certainly helps all right um so we talked a little bit about how um where an issue is with the Overton window suggests like what you need to do to, to take it to the next step. Um, but I want to get to some of the practical things uh, about uh, trying to persuade people. And this is a problem that a lot of us policy people have, which is when we're trying to persuade people, we're tr- we are excited about the things that got us persuaded about an issue. Um, and a lot of times we're not your typical guys. The things that we care about aren't the things that are persuasive. So how can you break through that? And what should you be focused on when you're trying to make um, uh, persuasive arguments? Yeah, the I mean, the there's a lot of talk in the marketing industry where it's people relate to stories and they don't relate to hard facts and figures and they re- and they basically put that as they relate to emotion and and I often push back on that and I'm like budgets and facts and figures do contribute to emotion if you if you have uh you know uh going to the city council and saying we can't meet our payroll at the end of the year that's going to spark in emotion, even though it's a budget fact and figure. Now, there's a point to it, which is when you're trying to persuade people, it's more about they might not understand what 30% pension debt means. They do understand if you say, all right, next year we can't cut the grass in our parks because we can't afford it because of all this debt that we've racked up. And so a lot of my job is trying to take the great – uh, facts and figures that our policy people are coming up with and trying to translate them to regular people. And we do that on energy policy uh, by by trying to say we, we don't need to get all into this technical terms, but, but how are we explaining to people, which is what they care about. They want the lights to turn on when they flip the switch and they want it to be a reasonable cost. And so we're trying to explain all this policy that is making it less likely that when you flip the switch, the light will go on and making your costs go higher. And so it's a it's a pretty easy point with a lots of complications to try to show how that actually um, is happening. Yeah, and I think we kind of, it's been presented as, a, what, are you going to do facts and arguments or, or emotional stories? And it's like, guys, you got to do both. There's a time and place for everything. And it really depends on, the argument, where you are, and, and what you're trying to accomplish. Because sometimes people really need to know the technical details of a policy. It's not often, but if you're having that, that la- if, you're, if you're already in that Overton window debate where you've got legislation, they're working on it, there's this battle of the one-pagers. There are these arguments that are resonating with legislators who may uh, change their votes because they don't feel comfortable about, about things. Sometimes facts really matter yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, and and sometimes people really want to see the evidence um, 
uh, behind a policy. Yeah, so too. one of the one of the policies that the Mackinac Center was instrumental in getting changed was on our, our state's film incentive program. And uh, it's this lasted for eight years when it went into place. Uh, it was a total vote combined of 145 to 1. So 145 uh, lawmakers in the House and Senate were in support. Only one voted against it. And then it lasted for eight years, and then eventually they got rid of it. And I was uh, testifying down in Florida because they were considering a film incentive program. And uh, some of the people that were bringing me down were asking me, well, how did Michigan get rid of this? And they were looking for what kind of marketing did you do? What did you dig up? And, and it was an interesting issue because film incentives are one of those where the studies are pretty much all on, this, on the same side. You've got industry-sponsored studies saying it's great. Um, but all the independent studies, whether it's from a liberal or conservative group, are mostly like, yeah, this is not a good way to spend the money. And maybe the Mackinac Center saying, hey, let's spend the money on tax cuts. And the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities is saying, let's give it to you know higher teacher pay. But we're both in agreement that it's not a great policy. But I told people there were two main arguments that worked to convince um, especially uh, Republicans to get rid of the program. The number one was a chart uh, from our fiscal policy folks um, that showed here's how much we spent over eight years and here's how many jobs we had over that time period, which basically showed you had a blip of jobs that were not very many. The second argument was showing them that the Michigan Film Office gave a million dollars to Michael Moore to shoot a film here here in Michigan. Uh, Michael Moore being this very liberal filmmaker who ironically got the money to, to do a film saying why corporations were the beneficiaries of special government help. And so it was two different things. One was the fact and figures, uh, and one was the high emotion where just Republicans really did not like Michael Moore. And that was kind of the two main arguments that uh, convinced them, let's get rid of these incentives. And there was one Democrat that was principled that said we shouldn't be giving money to the big Hollywood producers. Uh, you mentioned that um, you kind of got into policy through reading reading the newspaper, being persuaded, uh, uh, dealing uh, dealing with issues. Who do you read now? Who do you find persuasive? Um, the same guy, the same two guys that persuaded me when I was a freshman in high school, Thomas Sowell and George Will. Thomas Sowell uh, no longer writes op eds anymore. The great uh, longtime economist George Will is still writing. Um, I, I think I'm in my last couple of years with those two guys, unfortunately. But Thomas Sowell was one who – he was the first economist I'd ever read. And I just I just have these like lightning bolts where I'd read something from him. And it was basically – he was all about um, – he has a famous quote that I have next to my – or you know, it's next to my desk, which is, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And Thomas Sowell was always adamant. Here's what politicians are saying is going to happen. Here's the trade-off. And even when I was 15 years old, I I was astounded by that because I'd never heard anybody giving the trade-offs of public policy before. And George Will was always great and still is great about sharing the stories of real people. And he just wrote one the other day on a Supreme Court case on home equity theft. And he leads with this example of a grandmother in which she she did not pay a small part of her taxes. They seized her home. They auctioned it off, and the government kept all the proceeds. And so he's great on the storytelling time, connecting it to especially legal cases and facts and figures. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we've talked about some of our approach to to persuasion. You've, you've got a, 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 some of the people that you find per, uh, uh, persuasive. But it sounds like George Will and Thomas Sowell, like you're an easy mark for them. 
uh, they have persuaded you. Maybe that is why uh, uh, why you uh, you are susceptible to them. But let's talk about keep. Oh, look, this is a, a practice that I'm trying to do, um, and I don't know if you are. Which is, I want to be open to arguments that I'm not inclined to agree with. To pol- like like please try and sell me on this policy that I that I'm not. Uh, uh, that I'm that I'm not interested in right now, and there's so very few people who are even interested in in doing that. So I want to like try and uh, stay open for the few people who do. How do you stay open to arguments um, uh, trying to convince you of something that you're not inclined to believe already? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably, you know, the in terms of an issue where I've like, oh, I've had this set position and it's a policy area that I at least somewhat know about. Yeah, I, I, there's not much that I've I can think of that's changed my mind on those over the years. But I am I try to be open, especially on something where I don't know a lot about. Um, and so I read um, the Atlantic, which I find most of their writers uh, very much on the left for the most part. But they'll bring up issues that I just find interesting and I've never heard of, and that um, are are kind of a combination of facts and figures and storytelling that's somewhat persuasive to me. And then I'm I'm always um. I, I read a lot, um, uh, just a ton of books. I try to read an hour a day. I read over 100 books a year. And I will get in on these issues where I'll hear about something or maybe I've read an article and I'll think, man, I really don't know a lot about that issue. And and so then I'll go read a couple of books on it and I, I'll try to do it on, on some on both sides. So one of these uh, in the last year was on uh, JFK and the JFK assassination. And it was just one of those where I'm just too young, where it wasn't a huge part of my life. But for, for my parents and grandparents, I mean, that was like their 9-11. That was a defining moment. And I just realized I really knew almost nothing about the story of uh, on of JFK getting assassinated. So I read a couple of books that were kind of more open to this being a conspiracy. And I read a couple of books that were more kind of, nope, it's an open and shut case. It was Lee Harvey Oswald. Here's what happened. So it's not a policy thing, but it was something where I tried to be open and, and go research some of the evidence. And, you know, I was more persuaded, of course, like most people by the ones that kind of fit into how I would lay out the evidence or care about the evidence. Well, Jared, thanks for uh, uh, coming on and helping us understand how to shift the Overton window. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.